You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Very, very generous introduction. Uh, uh, I'm delighted to be here. So if, if, uh, if there's questions about the Austrian movement being a, a live uh, research uh, unit, there's also questions about uh, history of economic thought as being a, a live field within, uh, history of econom uh, within the economics profession. So I guess I have kind of double duty here in terms of trying to convince you that you might want to look at, uh, at history of economics as something that could be a, a research uh, uh, avenue that, that could be uh, lively and entertaining, but, uh, but you should be forewarned within the economics profession, history of economic thought is not, is not uh, alive and well, it's still alive, but perhaps not very well. And that's the reason that we have the Center at Duke, the Center for the History of Political Economy, which I'll talk a little bit more about at the end of this talk. Uh, its its uh, purpose is to support uh, and promote uh, both teaching and, and research uh, of history of economics. And we have a number of programs that I'll talk about at the very end that, that, will, uh, that will speak to that. So um, I'm going to talk uh, uh, this morning about uh, the history of mainline economics as a research topic. And uh, Hayek always chose his uh, titles for his, his uh, papers and books with, with great care. They, sometimes there were double or even triple meanings, or he's responding to, to various people. And, the way I worded that was very precise, and I'll, I'll get to that about halfway through the talk. But where I'd like to start out first is to tell you a little bit about how I came to, to be an historian of economics and also to start finding the Austrian school to be such a, an interesting uh, uh, research uh, topic within the history of economic thought. How many of you have had history of economic thought? Oh, that's nice. Okay. How many are undergraduates? Okay, and how many of you have had history of economic thought? Okay, takes my breath away. I'm going to have a little bit of water here. Uh, often, uh, uh, one hand might go up. So uh, this is a self-selecting group, obviously, but but that's uh, that's a very nice thing to know. I didn't start out as an historian of economic thought. Okay, I, I took economics as an undergraduate, and I loved my undergraduate economics. And I didn't get into history of economic thought until I was in grad school, because I hated grad school. I, it, you know, Israel Kirshner was talking about the kind of economics that the Austrians were responding to in the 40s and the 50s. It was not much better in the 70s when I was in grad school. It was a lot of theory. It was dry theory. I mean, it made pure theory of capital uh, a lively read, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, uh, in macro, it was growth models, one model after another after another. And what was even more depressing was how inarticulate my professors were when I'd say, why are we doing it this way? And they'd just say, shut up and do it, you know, just you know, lie there and take it. How can these people who are supposed to be intellects not be able to justify what their, what their particular approach is? Um, I took uh, some applied classes, so, you know, the theory classes and the econometric class was very, very dry. The techniques were fairly primitive given what's being taught today. Um, but I'd take some... Uh, applied class, like the I.O. class, and a guy starts out the class and just says, uh, we're going to look at lots and lots of empirical studies, but basically, um, 
There's only one or two things that have been established as being at all robust in terms of relationships. One that I remember was, okay, market share and profitability or level of profits are positively correlated. Duh, you know, of, of course, I, this is what I'm, I'm attending graduate school for. So anyway, at, at some point I took a history of thought class and uh, the historian of thought was uh, pretty good at of at least, uh, you know, allowing me to rant a little bit. And he said, well, you know, if you're interested in why we're doing things the way we're doing them, you know, there's a field called the philosophy of science. You could look at that. That's supposed to be telling you how to do economics scientifically, and maybe you can take a look at that and take a look at the practices of economics. And in fact, there's a literature within economics called the methodology of economics. Milton Friedman, Paul Samuelson, Fritz Machlup, Terence Hutchison, Lionel Robbins, all these people have contributed to it. So there I, that was what I did for my dissertation. And um, looking at the development of philosophy of science, what I, what I found was, uh, going back to the uh, 19th century uh, with uh, uh, Auguste Comte uh, developing positivism, in the early to mid 20th century, first logical positivism and then logical empiricism were the dominant philosophies of science. They were very prescriptive. They were laying out criteria by what it meant to be a scientific discipline. I thought, this is perfect. Uh, this would at least help me to understand economics better. And then there, I looked at this methodological literature uh, by economists. Now, what I then found as I got dug in a little deeper was that by the 1970s, when I was writing this, positivism was basically dead within the philosophy of science. Uh, I remember a, a famous uh, collection of articles and the editor of it, a major philosopher of science, that his last essay was Swan Song for Positivism. That is to say, it's, it's over. It died under its own weight of, of uh, uh, objections that were raised by people not from outside the philosophy of science, but within the philosophy of science. And what you had was a, a, a passel of different uh, approaches uh, associated with names like uh, Lakatosh and Kuhn and Popper that were quite different from the logical empiricism that reigned in the 1950s. Now, I looked then at what economists were doing, and economists mostly didn't know about the philosophy of science literature. So they didn't access it much. When they did access it, they often got it wrong. And in any event, many of the ideas in the positivist philosophy of science literature was written with the physical sciences in mind, not the social sciences. So they didn't realize that. And I started to realize that the, you know, what economists were doing was borrowing badly from a defunct philosophical position in an attempt to make themselves look more scientific. Because the one thing that logical empiricism did was to say, okay, here are criteria by which you can establish that you are scientific credibility. So I had lots to write about, given those findings, but it didn't get me any closer to understanding why economics was being done uh, the way it was being done. So at that point, I started to say, well, maybe there are alternative ways of thinking about doing economics. And one of the things about the heterodox groups, and there's lots of them then, okay? There's post-Keynesians, there were, um, institutionalist, old types of institutionalists, the new institutionalism hadn't quite come along yet, but there were, there were various uh, strands of that. And of course, there's always Marxism, but there was these various uh, groups that were challenging on methodological grounds, the approaches that were being taken by mainstream economics. So I thought, well, maybe if I understand them a little better, I'll come to understand the mainstream a little bit better. And it was in that context that I started to learn about the Austrians. And one of the sessions that I attended, I'm telling you about all this because hopefully some of this may resonate with where you are. But I went to a two-week workshop 
on Austrian economics. Now, as beautiful as this place is, let me tell you, <laughs> this was in Boulder, Colorado, okay? I had never been west of the Mississippi. I had never gotten to the Mississippi. Uh, I was just blown away by the physical beauty of this place. Uh, this was after a year out of grad school. Yeah, I, I looked up at the mountains. I said, those mountains are beautiful. And the people just laughed at me. They said, we call those the flat irons. You go up to the flat irons to see the real mountains, which I did. That blew me away, too. So as nice as this is, this was a great venue. But even more important was during those two weeks, I learned more in those two weeks than I did throughout my graduate education. It was more stimulating, certainly, than anything that I had done in grad school. And it is what got me going. So the teachers there were um, Israel Kirsner. So I first met him 37 years ago this coming summer. Uh, Roger Garrison and Jerry O'Driscoll. And on the basis of that, uh, I stayed in contact and Kirsner invited me to come to NYU where I met Roger Koppel, um, Larry White, and a number of other people who were there uh, either as assistant professors or in the uh, graduate program. I went there as a postdoc. The people that you meet here, if you end up going on as an academic, may be people that you're going to be encountering again some 37, 36, 35 years later. Scary thought, okay? So if you find somebody that you really don't like, don't talk to them a lot because you may end up knowing them for the rest of your life. So I started to get interested in looking at the Austrian movement as a group to do research on as an historian of economics, okay? Uh, just moving away from trying to understand the mainstream and just looking at it as a research program. Now, I didn't have any training to do that. I mean, there's no training for being coming in the story of economics. You know, I had an historian of economics uh, class or history of economics class, but I don't teach you how to be an historian. So just kind of making it up as you go along. Um, and then, 25 years ago, summer of 1991, I had the true um, experience. Now, this, this stuff that came before was really interesting, but the real experience was I went out to the Hoover Institution. And I spent a week out there in the, Hoover, in the Hayek archives. And I suddenly realized that everything that I'd been doing and the way I'd been doing it was wrong. That here you have this vast archival collection. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, from texts alone, here's a series of texts that Hayek wrote. Let's see if we can figure out how his ideas developed. You go in the archives and you suddenly see his correspondence that he's having with all these different people as he's developing the ideas. You're starting to see him express himself in ways that he's not expressing himself in papers, okay? Because papers are a finished product. And uh, it was just, uh, it was an epiphany. I like to eat. Um, when I go out to the Hoover, I'm out there usually for a week at a time. By the third day, I skip breakfast and I often skip lunch. I'm that pumped. Okay, I'm just there touching this stuff, trying to figure out what to take back. In the early days, it was Xerox. Now it's kind of holding my camera, trying not to, not to shake too much. Um, it's just wonderful stuff. So what's so great about it? Well, as I said, you're, you're actually looking at the material that they were writing as they were writing these texts that you're familiar with. And it just gives you a whole new perspective on how these ideas developed. So why did I choose the history of mainline economics as the title. Well, mainline is to indicate that it doesn't have to just be Austrian, okay? There's, uh, mainline is a phrase that, that uh, Pete Betke has used to distinguish mainstream versus mainline. Mainstream being whatever the current uh, training you get within uh, 
graduate programs across the country. Mainline being a tradition of ideas from Adam Smith, doesn't matter where you start, you know, the dating, but going forward that have a consistent view of the way that the world works. Israel Kirzner was talking a little bit about that last night when he said that we had forgotten ideas about competition when Frank Knight's uh, theory of perfect competition uh, started dominating the profession, that we started to lose our insights into what comp rivalrous competition actually meant. And I also didn't say history of thought, I just said history, because history doesn't have to be intellectual history. In fact, increasingly, um, as we'll see, uh, other aspects of, of history are starting to be uh, accessed. So, I've done a lot of work on Hayek, obviously. There are many other figures, if we just did think about the Austrians, who are equally prominent, who have not gotten the attention that Hayek has, and who should. Now, there isn't a biography of uh, Ludwig von Mises that has a lot of detail in it, but it's really hagiographic. And so I think that there's, a, there's still a, a, you know, a, a great deal of room uh, to improve on, on what's been out there already on Mises. But there's Fritz Machlup. Now, Roger Koppel has written about Machlup in, uh, in various ways. But in terms of a biography, this was a guy who was you know, president of the American Economic Association back when, when, when Hayek was, uh, was at LSE. I mean, he was, he was making a big impact in, in economics in the United States. Uh, Gottfried Habler, who was at Harvard. You've got people who are not economists, like Vogelin and Firth and others, who are part of this community of Austrians. And their correspondence is out there. It's not being accessed, but it's out there. It, it exists. A lot of it's in German. So if you happen to have German as a language, uh, you're in good stead in terms of this kind of research. And you know, in investigating how that community stayed in touch when it was completely broken up uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 1930s, uh, basically, when people were moving all over the place to, to escape uh, uh, the prospects of uh, what was happening in Germany, happening in Austria, and, and in fact, as it did, uh, only, only about four or five years later. So there's the Austrian community, but then there's also what we might call as fellow travelers. Okay, so Douglas North, Douglas North just recently passed away. Fantastic scholar, did economic history. There's been no biography of him. It was was uh, one of the three uh, founders of the new institutionalist economics movement, which has not been documented. Um, you know how that particular organization came together and, and stuff that it's been doing. And somebody who was really interested in Hayek, but not so much the Hayek that you would think, but he, he came and visited me at, uh, in, when I was in UNC Greensboro. And for two days, all he wanted to talk about was the sensory order, this part of Hayek that was, uh, that at that time, I didn't know too much about. I was thinking, geez, Doug, you know, how the hell should I know? It's a hard book. And you know, it prompted me in many ways to, to start looking at that, at that area of Hayek's work that I didn't know about. Well, his, his papers are down at Duke. Because he just died, there's a bunch of papers that are going to be coming. These things are just sitting there, ready for people to come in and start doing work. The public choice uh, uh, group, another set of fellow travelers. So, so when I say fellow travelers, I mean, I, I see Hayek not as you know, this person here and then everything goes out from him. He's part of this, this stream, this broad stream of mainline economics. And there's lots of different areas that, that uh, engage with this, with this, uh, in this stream. Um, I think of Buchanan and his papers here, and, and uh, uh, Solomon Stein is here, and he's been um, uh, dutifully and joyfully, I think. Uh, uh, certainly, I would that would be the, the emotion that would be brought out in me. 
uh, going through and trying to sort these papers out. This is what you do when you first get a bunch of stuff uh, coming into an archive. Uh, you have to figure out how to arrange it so that for, uh, future researchers uh, can access it. And um, it's, it's often trying to balance the way that they kept their papers with making them accessible to people who want to come in and read them and be able to know where, where to find stuff. And so he's been trying to, trying to put that together. I'll just uh, uh, say that we have a Summer in the Archives program. Uh, we actually do provide training for people how to work in archives. We have a Summer in the Archives program where we bring in two or three people in a summer, and they do that same sort of stuff that Solomon is doing uh, down at Duke. And we'll be doing it with, for example, the Douglas North Papers um, uh, as, they, as, as they come in. And I'll be able to tell, tell you more about that if you're interested uh, uh, later on in the Q&A. Uh, Vernon Smith is another person who um, you know, had a great appreciation of the Austrians, uh, uh, Hayek in particular. His papers are at Duke as well. And he's, uh, he's written a, a, a great, wonderful autobiography. Just a, a, a joy to read. Um, so he has, a, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there from his perception. But one of the things that historians do is actually take people's own, own accounts and then try to figure out how accurate they are, okay? Uh, because people like to, mem uh, to remember things in, in different ways <laughs> that often make them look better, okay? There's that. Vernon is not that way. Vernon's very, uh, very, yeah, he's very hard on himself in many ways. Um, but, but lots of other academics are, are not so much. And in fact, this, uh, the interest in experimental economics has really taken off within uh, history of economics. If you, if you Google uh, history of uh, experimental economics, the name that you'll keep coming up is Andre Sorensnik, who is a fellow at our center who has been working on that um, under Haro Moss, another, uh, uh, another uh, historian of economics. And, been doing lots of great stuff. One of the things I did was a witness seminar. Lovely idea. You bring together a dozen experimentalists. Get somebody who's going to interrogate them, who's very knowledgeable. Not interrogate as in, you know, uh, law and order, but, uh, you know, ask them questions, probing questions. And they're all sitting in a, in a room, hopefully a room that, that e evokes the period in which they were doing their work. And you ask them questions and you get them talking to each other. And they'll say, no, that's not the way, that's not what happened. Ah, oh, no, is that how you remember it? Because memory is one of these fragile things. You know, we create our memories. We don't recapture what happened. We create what happened. And, uh, and very, very insightful. They have a, they have a, uh, a document that uh, goes through the, the transcript of those sessions. Um, well, the transactions cost property rights, Bloomington School, there's, there's, there's literally, um, I don't know if dozens is probably too strong, but at least a dozen areas that could be investigated where it's not just an individual but a group and you're trying to tease out exactly how they came to be, what were the institutional constraints or uh, uh, tricks that they used to get established, uh, you know, roadblocks that they ran into, etc. Um, now, uh, you can also take a look at the roles of these groups within larger, broader categories. And I, I, I know that trigger warnings are very important um, uh, in, on campuses these days, so I'm going to give you a, a trigger warning. Okay, I'm going to use the N-word. Uh, neoliberalism. Okay? <laughs> neoliberalism. This is, the, uh, this is the area that is being gotten lots and lots of attention by people not only within histori histor historians of economics, although there are a few of these. Uh, I think a particular of um, 
Phil Morawski, Rob Van Horn, uh, Bernhard uh, Volpen in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Germany. Um, but uh, it's an area that is ripe for investigation for exactly how the ideas of these groups that you might be looking at fit into this larger discourse that's taking place outside of economics uh, that is increasingly important. Angus Bergen has been the historian who's, who's done uh, perhaps uh, some of the uh, most interesting recent work uh, looking at the Mont Pelerin Society. Now, Phil Morassi's looked at the Mont Pelerin Society too, and some people who are looking at these groups are, you know, they, they have an axe to grind, it's pretty evident, and, they, uh, and, and so that's actually great for historians of economics, because if you can show that somebody's just really misrepresented uh, a, a particular uh, set of ideas, uh, that's a real opening. Now, I used to, you know, Phil's a great friend of mine. I, I, I love him dearly. I think he, we disagree on everything, um, but we, it, it doesn't get in the way of our friendship. I thought he was extreme, and then I started to read Naomi Klein on, on Milton Friedman. I thought, geez, this is like an, you know, one magnitude higher. And then I read Robert Leeson on Hayek. And if you don't know this name, forget it. I ever mentioned it. It's not worth reading, but if you come across this stuff, it is poisonous, absolutely poisonous. And the beauty of these things is e each one of these people actually uses elements and bits that are in archival records or other places uh, in the news, and then weave them together in a narrative that, in my view, is absolutely false, okay, unrepresenting what actually happened. But they can point to elements that are out there. So one of the jobs of, of, a, of a historian of economics is to try to correct the record, to try to call these people when they, you know, they say, oh, well, if you look in the archives, la, la. Uh, that, okay, let's look in the archives, not just pick out one little bit that supports this bizarro narrative that you've constructed on your own out of whole cloth. Um, so anyway, within that neoliberalism uh, uh, example, um, Ordo-liberalism is an area that is increasingly being looked at. There's a group of scholars in uh, Freiburg who are looking at the contributions of, of uh, economists that were, who are great friends of, of Mises and Hayek that were taking slightly different views on um, you know, constructing a liberal order, as it were. Uh, you've got the work of Erwin Decker um, on kind of the cultural uh, elements that are interplaying with, um, uh, with the ideas of the of particularly the Austrian economists, but also others. Uh, so there's lots of different um, areas that you could go there. I'll just mention somebody who came through GMU, who is at, uh, at our center now, uh, Simon Bilo. Uh, he's looking at the rise and fall, and he says, he, he, I think he's going to put it that way, of the NYU Austrian program. Not that it's over, but that there was this, uh, this how did it ever get created? He's looking at letters between funding agencies, between Kersner, Ludwig Lachmann, some of these you know, really important figures in that, uh, that group that was at NYU, um, and you know, how it expanded, but then how ultimately it, 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 uh, it ran into problems with the faculty, who are the other faculty members who were quite happy to take the money, but not so happy to support the program. So the program's still there, but it's not like it's, it's, be, it's become what they were hoping it would become when they first started funding it. Uh, so network analysis that a sociologist might bring to this is equally relevant to um, just looking at 
how these things uh, were put together. And indeed, as it turns out, um, now I'm kind of on top of this because we're, we're trying to build this, uh, these ideas uh, or uh, try to support this kind of research at the center. You've got people who are anthropologists, sociologists, uh, people in fields outside of economics who are really, historians who are really interested in accessing these, this archival work. So, I mean, this is something that even if economists may not appreciate it so much, it certainly is being, uh, is being appreciated by people outside of that. I'll, I'll finally say that if you, do, um, if you do archival work in particular, it's kind of like doing empirical work in economics. A lot of times the data helps determine the problem. So you have to figure out what the data are first, and then you can see what kinds of questions you can ask about it that might be of interest to somebody. So really getting your hands dirty by getting into the archives is the place to start. You need to see what's there. I'm working on a biography of Hayek right now. And the family is uh, supporting this. Um, I'm, I'm the general editor of the collected, Hayek Collected Works. And the idea was that whoever uh, edited the collected works would ultimately be also the biographer. And they would give that person access to um, the family correspondence. So I was just, you know, couldn't wait to get into this. Um, it turns out the family correspondence is mostly his family writing to him. <laughs> his letters aren't there. So you have to try to figure out what he was saying in his letters to them uh, from their letters to him. So he kept all of their letters. Okay? Well, he had a divorce in 1950. So, yeah, he keeps his kids' letters. He kept his first wife's letters. There's not that many letters between him and his second wife. But, you know, the first wife was pissed about the divorce, so she got rid of his letters. And then the kids were pissed about the divorce, so they got rid of the letters. So, I mean, there's just not that, that much from his side. So it is a bit of a, uh, that, that's a, an example of how the data can kind of affect the story that you're going to be able to get to tell. I can still kind of, you can tell a little bit because they're reacting to things that he said, but um, you have to kind of piece it together yourself. Um, okay, so how do... Let's say, let's just say, I've piqued your interest, okay? You don't have to say that I really did. Let's imagine I piqued your interest, okay? Let's say I piqued your interest. How are you going to figure out how to do this? First of all, um, many of you have had history of thought classes, so that's good. For the rest of you, poor schleps, go into your department head and say, I demand, okay? And they're going to be afraid it's going to be you know, some sort of... Um, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter or something like that. It's a political thing. And you just say, no, I demand a history of thought class, okay? And they're going to be so relieved, okay? They're going to be so relieved to say, okay, we'll see what we can do. Try to get, you know, put pressure. I always tell people, put pressure. You, you, you have no idea as students how much influence you actually have until you start trying to do it. And, and if you get pushback, then start looking like you're going to do something really bad. Um, I encourage you to do this. Take this attitude. Uh, be the revolutionaries that you can be. Um, but also, there are programs. <clears throat> um, obviously, the George Mason program has heavily uh, uh, supported uh, various approaches to, that involve the history of economics. Okay? Might be slightly different from the way Duke does history of economic thought, um, in the sense that we, we might be more interested in neutral history versus advocacy. I don't know if that's actually a fair representation, but uh, certainly in terms of 
of uh, places where you get a good exposure to it. There are lots of graduate programs if you go on to become an academic and you go to grad school where you can get this. And there are others that are out there. Um, Duke is, is a place where we have a center. So we realize that most places don't have history of economics. So we've got to figure out ways to bring history of economics to people who are not at Duke. Because you know, we might have one grad student a year in an entering class of 20 who has any interest in history of economics. And then the other professors get their, you know, their talons into them and, and say, look, don't do that, don't do that. And some of them listen. But others are going, you know, going forward and doing, doing a great job. But um, so we have a, a, summer in the, a summer in the archives program, as I said, where uh, people are interested in figuring out how to do archival work and what might be in a particular archives, come in and work for two months with, a, with an archivist. We have a fellowship program where people come Sometimes they are working on their own PhDs uh, and they are interested in a topic in history of economics, so they might be having a chapter from their dissertation on that. Others are postdocs, uh, and some are mid-career people. So we've had Phil Murawski in, for example. So you're there, you're, you've got a bevy of historians of economics uh, who are at Duke. Uh, you can sit in our classes, especially the junior people, we encourage them to, to do that if they want. Um, uh, you have other people who are also interested in history of economics, and you've got uh, more senior people, uh, not only the faculty, but the, the, the people who are visitors. And we have a, a weekly lunch. Sometimes uh, people discuss work in progress, you know, the papers that they're working on. Sometimes we just have general open discussions about any kind of topic. Uh, we haven't had the Trump discussion yet, but, you know, we're looking forward to it. You had foreign students, so they're probably trying to figure out what's going on uh, in American politics. Um, <clears throat> and then we have a workshop on Friday afternoons. Usually these are people from off campus who come in and, uh, and give, a, uh, give a talk and then we have a reception afterwards and dinner. So the usual stuff with the fellowship program. We also have a summer institute. Uh, we've had now running I think our sixth or seventh this coming summer. This summer it's sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's mostly for college professors or at least people with their doctorate. Uh, but there are three slots that are reserved for grad students. And uh, because it's uh, sponsored by the NEH, what it, it involves is reading uh, Texas, three-week-long uh, uh, summer institute, Adam Smith and the Scottish Enlightenment the first week, Marx, the institutionalist, marginalist, early Austrian second week, uh, 20th century in the third week, Keynes, we have, we're going to have Angus Bergen come in and talk about some of his more recent research, uh, Chicago School, other things. Um, and at least half or maybe even more than half of the people who attend it are not going to be from economics, but they'll be from sociology, English, you know, literature departments, psychology, uh, anthropology, all these different fields. And we're reading these texts in common. And then people are saying how they would approach them and what they were taking from them. And how can you be reading it that way, you know? It's wonderful, actually, the interaction that you can get when you bring people in very different, from very different fields together. It's like some of the best Liberty Fund ones, okay? Sometimes, you, if any of you have heard of Liberty Fund, this is where you often bring people from different fields together to discuss common text. Well, it's a little more organized than Liberty Fund, and, uh, and these people are smart and they want to talk, okay? They're college professors, they're paid to talk, so you get some good interactions. <clears throat> There's also, um, so those are some of the programs that we've got. I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody 
about them uh, afterwards. You've got the, the great programs that are going on uh, uh, here at GMU. I'll just finally close with a, a program that Jennifer Burns. So Jennifer Burns has written a, a, a very nice book on the goddess of the marketplace, Ayn Rand. Uh, it was kind of touted as uh, neither uh, a slam job nor hagiographical, that is to say a, an attempt to actually come to grips with the, with the person in, in the context of her times. Uh, so it's gotten very good reviews. She was at Virginia, but she's moved to Stanford, and she runs uh, each June a, a week-long program where people come work in the archives out there at the Hoover Archives. Fantastic set of papers, a bunch of economist papers, but lots of other papers there too. Um, and they, uh, they, you work in the morning, you meet for lunch, people talk a little bit about their projects with each other, uh, their approaches. Again, they're people from different fields, different areas, and, uh, and they spend a week out there. So she's, she's been doing that. She's currently writing a book on Milton Friedman. Uh, of course, there is an autobiography uh, by Rose and Milton, Two Lucky People. It is good as far as it goes, but there's so much that they don't cover that it's interesting, and she's been digging up stuff, you know, from Milton's past in Rahway. It's wonderful. I've been reading some of her stuff. It's just it's fantastic. Kind of, uh, uh, he didn't represent their family position quite as accurately as, as he could have in terms of their, their relative wealth. I mean, they were doing better than, than she than, than he portrayed uh, in his, which is typical. You know, I'm just a poor boy from common origins. Well, they, they weren't rich, but they weren't, they weren't that poor. Okay, well, look, I've, uh, I thank you for your attention and your patience because I know not all of you want to become historians of economics, but hopefully I've piqued a few people's interest because we, got, we only want a few anyway. We want the really, the cream of the crop, creme de la crop. Okay, so I'll stop there and take, uh, be happy to take questions. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.